Well, good morning. I'm glad to uh, be able to be with you today, and I uh, am excited about this message today. Uh, as we begin and as we try to uh, attune our hearts and our minds uh, to hear God's Word this morning, I want to share with you a, a brief story. <clears throat> when I accepted the call to ministry, I began my studies at Lynchburg College in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is a uh, college affiliated with the Christian Church. And uh, as part of my preparation, I, I got a job because, you know, everybody wants to get a job at a church. And, and I was the new <clears throat> middle school pastor at Memorial Christian Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now, you have to understand that in my youthful arrogance, I told myself I'll never serve a church named Memorial Christian Church. I just thought that was a horrible name for a church. And the first church God calls me to is Memorial Christian Church. So just know that be careful what you say because God has a wonderful sense of humor. And uh, there is also a sad side to that story. It's just a few weeks ago, Memorial Christian Church closed its doors. So it's no longer uh, a viable congregation. And unfortunately, uh, that is, is, seems to be the story that we hear across the country from all different kinds of churches. And, but, but as a way of, of, of giving God glory in the midst of that, that church, I learned some valuable lessons. And there was one very significant, poignant event that happened to me while I was there. Just a punk kid uh, in college thinking I knew everything <clears throat> and real excited about this uh, middle school ministry, being the middle school pastor there. And we were having a, a gathering at, with all of the kids, all the middle school kids there. And, you know, we had this uh, one kid who was sort of the outsider. You know it. You, you've seen this before. There, there's always one kid. He didn't have the right clothes. He might not have taken a bath or a shower as well as he could have. He tried to be cool, but it just kind of came off kind of awkward. And, and he was just hungry for friends and hungry for people to accept him. But none of the other kids seemed to accept him. But it, he was tenacious. He never gave up. He stayed in that youth group. He was there every week in that youth group. And, and, and I think sometimes even when they made fun of him, he didn't even... Either he didn't know that they were making fun of him, or he just chose to overlook it because it was so important for him to be there. On this particular day that we were having you know, a youth event, we were out in the yard of the church, big, beautiful yard with lots of trees and lots of places. They decided that they would play hide-and-seek, you know, and, and he was so excited to be a part of that and to participate in that. And so uh, one of the popular kids, you know, the, the kid that sort of decided what all the other kids were doing, he was the one who was it. And all the other kids ran off to find their hiding places behind trees and in other places. And, and he was so excited to be a part of this. And he ran and he found a hiding place as well. And I was just looking at this from afar, watching this all happen. And something horrific happened at that very moment. Because what happened is, is that the popular kid, the kid that was it, and all of the other kids, except for this one young, awkward little boy, all the other kids just simply walked away from the field and went over onto the other side of the campus and began to play another game. And that little boy who had found a hiding place was so excited that he was able to hide so well that no one was able to find him. But the truth was, no one was looking for him. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been looking at these encounters with Jesus, and we have been introduced to some people who have been found 
by Jesus, some folks who Jesus was looking for. The first week, we were introduced to Andrew. He was the first story of the first called, is what the church calls Andrew. And Andrew goes on, uh, according to church tradition, church history, to be a tremendous evangelist. As a matter of fact, he converts most of what we know today to be Turkey and is honored even to this day as the disciple, as one of the original disciples, one of the apostles who was able to bring the gospel to that part of the world. Jesus is looking for apostles, those whom he can send, those who, like Andrew, can go get the one. As Andrew went and got the one, his brother, so can we also go get the one. And then last week, we were introduced to the second guy, uh, Nicodemus, uh, a religious leader, the religious. And, you know, sometimes we use that word religious with negative connotations. The, the interesting thing is, is the word religious is actually a good word. It comes from the Latin religium. It means to put back together, to tie, to bind, but it's a good kind of binding because we get the word ligament from it. And most of us here, we want our ligaments to work. And so to be religious in the true meaning of the word is to be tied back together with God. So he's religious in that sense. He, he, and, and although Nicodemus may not have understood the fullness, we saw last week that he loved God. And he knew that Jesus was different. And, and, and the, these, uh, the, the, there's a sense in our culture today that we can dismiss those folks who are, who are religious, those folks who carry titles like apostle. And yet, it is people like Nicodemus who have the influence, who have the know-how, the administrative know-how, who have the knowledge and the wisdom to be a significant part of promoting the gospel. We shouldn't be afraid of those folks. God has a plan for those folks. Folks who are entrenched and in leadership, God wants to use them for his glory. And this week, we meet someone who stands, well, shall we say, apart (laughs) from people like Andrew and Nicodemus. Uh, the, the, The person we're going to meet today isn't someone who would have been viewed as an apostle or even somebody pursuing righteousness, certainly would have been viewed like Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious leader. Today, we meet someone who may not have even known that they needed to be found. The Gospel of John calls her the woman of Samaria. In the synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, she's oftentimes called by the more uh, well-known title, the woman at the well. And so this morning, we're going to meet the woman at the well, the woman at Samaria. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. It's a little long today, but I, I trust that coming to church to hear God's Word is a good thing, not a bad thing. And so John chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 of John chapter 4. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, 
Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in that one a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking. For the Father is seeking. For the Father is seeking. You won't forget that, will you? For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God of spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. I first want to share a little bit about this woman because there's so much background here that to really understand this story, you have to kind of know this background. And this background goes all the way back to the kings. King, King Saul and then King David and then David's son, King Solomon. And after King Solomon... When he dies, two men war for the throne. One of them, who is not related to Solomon, is a guy named Jeroboam. 
And the other is Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And there's been some bad uh, advice offered to Rehoboam because uh, Rehoboam is uh, uh, trying to figure out how to carry on this kingdom. And the advisors who had served Solomon say to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, look, the best way that you can win the hearts of the people, you're not going to be surprised by this, is to cut taxes. The church said amen, right? And uh, Rehoboam decides that his friends, the other guys that are his age and therefore know as much about anything as anyone else, say, no, 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 no. You need to raise taxes even more. You tell them that you thought my dad was bad. You wait until I start taxing you and taking your sons into the military and conferring my will upon you. And so, in essence, a civil war happens. And, and what happens is, is the 12 tribes of Israel that formed the United Nation, the, the, the United uh, Country of, of Israel, fractures, but not in half. About 10 and a half, you could say 11 tribes, go to the north. And they form the nation called Israel, so the northern kingdom of Israel. And <clears throat> the nation in the south, which is mainly just the tribe of Judah, but they also happen to have the city of Jerusalem, they form the nation of Judah. And so you have this divided nation, all of the tribes of Israel to the north against the tribe of Judah, and Judah's only uh, position of, 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 uh, of authority is that they have the temple. The temple is in Jerusalem. They control the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, if you want, want to worship God, you've got to come to Jerusalem. And so the kings in the north know that this isn't a good thing. And so the kings in the north say, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore to worship. You can worship on what the Bible calls the high places. And so all of these altars are built on these great mountains throughout the northern kingdom. And the mountain on which this woman is with Jesus is perhaps one of the most important mountains in the northern kingdom. We don't need to go into all the details of how that happened. Just know that of all the high places, this is the most important. Well, as you remember from your Old Testament history, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah begin to drift away from God. Originally, the northern kingdom, because they're accepting foreign gods and pagan gods and, and, and not worshiping God the way God wanted to be worshipped, and the southern kingdom, which has the temple, begins to bring idols of foreign gods into the very temple of God. And so God begins to warn them through the prophets, and when they refuse to hear the prophets, he brings judgment on both of those two nations. But he brings judgment, first of all, to the northern kingdom of Israel. And that judgment is known as the Assyrians, one of the greatest world powers of the ancient world. And the Assyrians come down, and they totally and completely conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. But they do something that is horrific as well. They force all of the women to marry foreign men, and they carry all of the men off to foreign countries, forcing them to take families of other foreign folks and to labor as slaves. And, 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 and what ultimately happens is their unity, their ethnic unity, is destroyed. Now, the southern kingdom is also judged eventually. 
and the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, uh, they're conquered by the Babylonians and carried off into captivity. But the difference is, is the Babylonians don't require them to intermarry. And so the purity, if you will, don't know if I like that word, of their ethnicity remains intact. Fast forward now, the Persians have arisen and the Jews have been allowed to come back to Jerusalem and ultimately the, the, the kingdom of what was once a proud nation has found themselves under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And there are two types of Jews that live in this nation. There are those who came from captivity who still hold some ethnic purity. And then there are those Jews whose purity, according to the Southerners, is not as pure, and therefore they are given a name which is an insult. And they are called the Samaritans. It is a dirty word. Why is it dirty? Well, it's reflecting who they are based upon their land and what happened in their land, and not because they're descendants of Abraham, not because they're people of God. And so those who were ethnically Jewish did everything that they could do to avoid the Samaritans. The other thing we know about this lady, not only is she a Samaritan, but she comes to the well at noon. Now, why would she come to the well at noon? We know that in the ancient world, it was women's jobs to get the water every day. Please don't get angry at me. Please don't throw chairs at me. But it was the woman's responsibility to get the water for the family each day. And she went to get the water twice a day. She went once in the morning and once in the evening. And the reason she did that is is because it was cooler in those days. The water was cooler. It was easier for her to get the water and carry it back to the city, to her family. And so the fact that this woman is coming at noon means that she's coming to avoid the other women of the city. Now, if, if you miss this, let me be blunt. First of all, the woman is an outcast because she's Samaritan. But even worse still, she's an outcast among outcasts because she comes at noon. Well, how do we know? Because she's been married five times. Now, that may not seem like a big deal in our contemporary culture, but in the ancient world, that was huge. Certainly, divorce was allowable under the Jewish code, under the Mosaic law. Jesus talks about that in the New Testament. But it wasn't that exceptionally common to happen five times. What does that mean? Could it mean, as John Calvin says, one of the Protestant reformers. He is the forebear of what we know to be the Reformed Church, Presbyterians and the like. Perhaps even we in the Christian Church could claim some connection to him since we come from Presbyterians. John Calvin says that she had five husbands because she was an immoral woman and these men just couldn't be married to her. How many ladies in the room now hate John Calvin? I think John Calvin's wrong. You see, I think when we look into the hearts of people who find themselves in these kinds of situations, it is easy for us to judge that they want to be in those situations. And that's not true. I challenge any of you to go downtown 
into any major city in the United States, maybe even here in Denver, maybe even closer than the city limits of Denver, go with your wife's permission, or better yet, take her with you, and meet a woman down there walking the streets, plying her trade, if you will, at 11 o'clock at night or thereabouts, and ask her, is this what you love doing with your life? I can guarantee you that folks in those kinds of situations don't stay home when they're teenagers and dream about the day that they get to walk streets at, them at night in order to make their way through this life. Let's not even pick those people. Let's pick anybody who find themselves in, in a situation that makes them different or an outcast and ask them, did you want to be in this situation? Is this what you dreamt for in your life? Or is it the case, as is the case of so many people that we know today, you may even know personally, who because of life's circumstances had no other choices, and they found themselves doing what they're doing, and in the situations that they were doing it, because life had been brutal to them. Once this woman had been married once, even twice, her ability to find any love would be remote. Any stability, any economic safety, and in her situation, the point of, of, her, of her, her angst and her pain and her abuse and her abandonment had gotten to the point where now the guy that she is depending upon isn't even her husband, hasn't even the respect to commit himself to her and the contract that would been customary under the laws of Moses. This woman is a Samaritan. She is an outcast among outcasts. She is a woman who has, in my opinion, suffered utterly horrific abuse in her life. But I like this woman because even in the midst of her pain, even in the midst of her angst, she doesn't take this whole meeting with Jesus lightly. Now, know this, that the text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Remember when I read that? That's an interesting phrase because the truth is, is that Jews did everything that they could do to avoid Samaria. As a matter of fact, if a, if a righteous religious Jew needed to travel north out of Jerusalem to Galilee or to any other parts of the Roman Empire, they would do everything that they could do to avoid Samaria, including either traveling to the far east of Samaria or along the coast to the far left, uh, west of Samaria. Anything but going through Samaria. It reminded me of my dad. My dad did boot camp in, in, in Georgia. And I remember uh, he hated Georgia. No offense to any of you who are from Georgia, but he loathed Georgia. And I think it all had to do with boot camp. But nevertheless, I remember one year when I was in fifth grade, we, we planned a family vacation, and we were going to go down to Florida to Disney World, and <clears throat> dad was saying that it was going to take like, you know, 20-some hours, and mom was like, how's that? I mean, even with roads not as good as they are today, that seems like a, a lot of hours in order to get to Florida. And dad said, well, that's because we have to go around Georgia. <laughs> Mother said, what do you mean? She, dad said, I'm not driving through Georgia. We're going to go around Georgia. I'm not going through that state. I said when I got out of the Army, I'm never going back to Georgia. Well, just know that mom won that argument. <laughs> but also know that we didn't stop 
at all in Georgia. And know that as a fifth grader, going all the way through Georgia without stopping was a feat in and of itself. And if you think about it, you'll know what I'm talking about. But we got through Georgia. And that's what a Jew, a righteous Jew, would have done. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is what I think. I wonder that if in the very pavilions of heaven, God the Father had already established a timeline where the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ himself, was going to have to have this appointment with this woman. Now you think about that. This woman who thought she was an outcast among outcasts. This woman who was abused. This woman who had suffered an atrocious affront to her character and her integrity. The one true God of the universe had in his divine plan already established an appointment where he would meet her and speak to her. Now that, I think, would drive me to my knees, but not this woman. Oh, no, I love her. Because when Jesus starts talking to her, she comes back at him. Now, the problem is when we read the Bible, we read it with what I like to call a sanctified voice. You, you know, a voice that makes it all sound pretty and, and neat. The kind that you do at Christmas Eve, you know. We always switch to King James Version at Christmas Eve, don't we? I don't think that's the conversation this woman and Jesus had because this woman said to Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who would take away her sins and the sins of the world upon the cross, she has the boldness to say to this man, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I like it when when people just throw it out there on the table for you. When people say, you need to realize that there is inequity in this world. You need to realize that some people are still struggling. This is Black History Month in our country. And it's important for us to hear that there are those who still suffer and still are struggling. It's important for us when we hear stories about refugees from Vietnam who, who become executive directors of national and international relief agencies, the struggles that they had to go through to get where they are, to be able to do what they are doing. This woman goes on to say, are you greater than, than who? Our father, Jacob. Now, now, to a Jew, to hear that, that would have been, that'd been fighting words. Why? Because the, the religious Jew would have said, Jacob's not your father. Jacob's my father. And what I love about this is because this woman knows she's an outcast. We already got that from her first uh, interchange with Jesus. She's already said, I know that you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. But this woman is bold enough to say, Jacob, by the way, is our father too. She goes on. She doesn't stop there. Because later on, in just a few verses, she says, our fathers, there's that phrase again. That's sort of like people say, my Bible says, really? It's not mine too? It should say the same thing, shouldn't it? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
Jesus comes back at her and says, there's a day coming. There's a day coming when you will neither worship on the mountain or in the temple. There's a day coming when worship will not be based upon geographical locations or ethnicity or political persuasions, but worship will be in spirit and in truth. And then one of my favorite responses of all from her, in my opinion, the most powerful. I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell who? Us all things. You know what I love about this woman? That in her brokenness, in her being an outcast, she knows that God has a word for her. And even though everyone else tells her that she's not worthy, she has no right to it, she's holding on with dear life that God has a word for her. Jesus, I want you to notice a couple things here. First of all this, if you're this woman, no matter whether you're a man or a woman, if you're this woman, if you're an outcast, if you're struggling, if you have been told you're not worthy, that's all right. You keep coming at God because God's big enough to handle it. God doesn't need me or you to defend himself. He can defend himself just fine. And as a matter of fact, based on this story, what this Bible tells me, what my Bible tells me, is, is that God receives all of that anger that you have and responds to it with love. Because time and time again after this woman came at Jesus, Jesus just opened his arms wider and pulled her closer. So that's the first thing I want to share with you. The second thing I want to share with you is this. You may not be this woman, and not all of us are. But Jesus is our model. And so you take hope in this, that as your family pushes you away because you speak the name of Jesus, or your friends don't want anything to do with you because in their brokenness, they're angry at God. I, I, I love what was said at a, a debate not too long ago uh, between an atheist and a, and a, and a uh, uh, apologist, Christian apologist. He says, basically what I think about your argument is you don't believe in God and you're angry at him. Takes a while. But that's the case for many of us. We don't believe God cares about us. We don't believe God is concerned about us. And we're angry at the God we don't think cares, which means what? We really believe God does care. And so if you're the person that is constantly being shoved away, remember Jesus just keeps opening his arms up wider. One of my favorite verses in the Bible comes from Romans chapter 10, verse 20. As Paul says this about Jesus, Jesus says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. If you're not sure that you need to be found, Jesus is still looking for you. If you don't want to be found, Jesus still wants to enfold you in his arms. And this woman, 
She's changed by the encounter. Because the Bible says, my Bible and your Bible. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? You see, you don't need to worry about whether Jesus will see you at your worst because he already knows who you are. He's the Christ. What you need to do is you need to just stop running. And he'll bowl you over because he's right behind you. We're going to come to this table in just a few moments. It's the Lord's table. And I want you to meet Jesus here. He knows everything you've done. And he said to you, you're my child. You're the one that I gave my life for. Maybe you haven't made Jesus Lord of your life. I hope you'll do that today. After the service, there'll be elders here that'll speak with you. He knows everything you've done. And all he wants to do is take you in his arms.